I'm Aowak Mbade, and you're listening to Mind Theater, the show where I analyze art from visual mediums, exploring my personal histories with them, and revealing what makes them so compelling. On the first episode of the show, I'll be diving into a series I think both comic nerds and diehard fantasy fans will be enthralled by. Saga, the sci-fi fantasy space opera at the intersection of Star Wars and Game of Thrones. Journey with me into the minds of writer Brian K. Vaughn and artist Fiona Staples' worlds of landfall wreath and the greater galaxy at large in Saga. I think the best place to start in terms of analyzing a graphic novel to begin with is sort of my history with graphic novels. And my history isn't really that much at all. It's pretty slim. But there's this one graphic novel I remember, one comic. It was uh, The Power Pack. It was like the this group of children, they were like siblings, fighting fighting evil essentially they were a fantastic four of sorts all siblings all all children in in the marvel universe and they fought marvel villains like doctor doom and they fought alongside marvel heroes like captain america and iron man and that was really my initial spur into the into the comics realm and it was just issues of that my dad had given them to me so, and they were print. Uh, you know, you know. Nowadays, I'm not really buying stuff like that. Uh, in print, usually I try to my best to. If I'm reading anything, it's going to be digital. But at the time, being able to flip through the pages was a really visceral, immediate. Uh, sort of experience. My rekindled attraction and love for comics didn't really pick up steam again until, like, I think summer 2018. This was after Game of Thrones had premiered in 2017. It was taking a hiatus for the year. So I needed something to sort of fulfill that gap in my sci-fi and fantasy. And I checked out certain other TV shows and movies and just trying to really pick up on something that had staying power for me to hold me over for Game of Thrones, because at that point, I didn't really, I didn't have fantasy burnout, really. I just had Game of Thrones burnout, specifically, so I didn't want to rewatch the series. I didn't really want to be involved in anything Game of Thrones related. I wanted something completely new, something completely fresh. I wanted something completely new, something completely fresh. I started picking up a few comics. There was Why the Last Man, which is an interesting uh, tale. There's... Uh, I think it was called Paper Girls, about these newspaper delivery girls from the 1980s. Uh, and they all sort of tugged on different things, different ideas, different themes. But the one that really stood out to me was Saga. And, you know, Why the Last Man and Paper Girls, they're both by the same author. Uh, Brian K. Vaughn. But the thing about that stuck, stuck out to me about Saga is that even though I wasn't looking for something Game of Thronesian or Game of Thrones content again, it had so many Game of Thronesian sort of ideas. But it also made other uh, fantasy series that I had not really been crazy about all of a sudden look more pal- look more palatable, look more attractive because it had elements of Star Wars and Star Trek, which are two properties I'm not as invested in as Game of Thrones 
and it somehow it melded it in a way with Game of Thrones that made it new and exciting and fresh to to the comic scene for me. So, where to begin with Saga? Saga is this expansive work with many moving parts, there's characters with competing motivations, various alien races and different cultures clashing in really interesting ways, and really the major conflict that exists in this world is this millennium-lasting war between the planet Landfall and its moon, Reef. And Landfall is home to these winged creatures, the winged humanoids, and Wreath is to these is home to these rammed like horned creatures and like, kinda like satyrs, I guess, from Greek mythology, and they are embroiled in this conflict. But to avoid this conflict from wreaking havoc on landfall and wreath, these two nations have outsourced their combat across the galaxy, so it's led to this binary of allegiance where different planets and and star systems are all choosing sides in this war of Landfall versus Wreath and letting them fight their battles on their planets and moons and star systems. At the center of this conflict, we have our two main characters, Marco and Alana, who sort of act as foils for one another. Alana is from Landfall. She has a sharp tongue and is quick with her wits, uh, very violent, very hot-headed, whereas Marco from the moon Wreath is more honorable, loving and caring, and extremely anti-violent. He starts off the series with this sort of code of honor. He, even though he holds a sword by his side, he refuses to use it because he says basically nothing good ever comes from choosing the violent route, uh, the violent option in a situation. And the very first panel of the comics is Alana giving birth to their child, which sets the tone for the entire series. Not only the tone, but the main objective, the main mission of Marco and Alana, which is to protect their child, this child which represents the culmination of this millennium-lasting war between their species, something that is considered so blasphemous to both their races, but has somehow come from this union that is unholy, that is, it wasn't even thought to be possible, that these two species could even conceive a child, let alone fall in love. And this child born from their union is Hazel. And throughout the series, Hazel is narrating the story. Um, walking us through, talking us through in little bite-sized pieces throughout the panels, through the struggle that her parents went through to protect her and keep her out of harm's way from the pursuers. And I think Hazel sort of represents this clashing of worlds that something beautiful can come out of something awful, such as a long-lasting war. And it plays with this idea of if there's hope for Hazel, there may be hope for Landfall and Wreath at large. But that hope isn't guaranteed at all, and it, it doesn't come easy. There's this struggle, there's this sort of nature of the races that needs to be broken. And we see it in the way the races interact um, with the world around them. The landfalling races seem to be more technologically advanced. They rely more on 
tech and science. Whereas the race on Wreath is more attuned to magic, more closely spiritually connected with uh, nature. There's this really interesting scene in one of the earlier issues where Alana refers to wanting to perform this ritual on her daughter known as wing bleeding, which is this sort of rite of passage in Lanfalian culture. Not too dissimilar, I would assume, at least the way they describe it, to circumcision in Western cultures. And Marco is immediately taken aback by it, by the concept completely, and he is adamantly against what he refers to as mutilating his daughter. And so this very early interaction between Marco and Lana raises the question of how are these two very different people going to raise this child together? And we see this sort of infighting, not, not really infighting, but this drastically different approaches to parenting, these drastically different parenting styles come to head as they go out throughout the course of their journey. And they're going from plant to planet, from moon to moon, dodging and evading their pursuers, like the Will, who is this freelancer bounty hunter of sorts who has a hit out on them, just trying to collect some cash, basically. Then there's Robot 4, who is this high royal official who has been given this ultimatum that he has to kill Alan and Marco or not be able to return back to his family. So there's parallels to, like, Zuko from Outer Less Airbender in that storyline. We're not just seeing the angle of Marco and Alana, we're seeing these other interesting side characters who a lot of times can be a little bit more interesting than the main characters, which is very Game of Thronesian, I think, where these these side characters exist on the peripherals, where they somehow they touch the themes at just a different angle, at a different vantage point that makes them a little bit more interesting and it makes the themes more digestible because you're not just being hit on the head with this is what you should be thinking. You always get a, an out, uh, a left side of it, a right side of it, a slightly off-angled side of it, and a different perspective on how the world works. Characters like The Will really highlight the grim darkness that is very present throughout the series. You know, in stories more like Star Wars, there's threats like planets being destroyed, but stuff like that isn't really as personal as death that could be more intimate. Death that you see in, like, Game of Thrones. So that's where Saga sort of meets this intersection, this really interesting intersection. And I think it's best to describe one of the earlier scenes in the story. So, fair warning, I'll be spoiling something from, I think, issue five or six. It all starts when the Will, a freelancer, lands his spaceship in a place called Sextillion. Now, Sextillion is this planet made to please all manner of sexual appetite, fetishes, and extraterrestrial perversions. And the Will is walking through the Sextillion streets, unimpressed by what he sees, referring to the desires they cater to as being a little on the safe side. But eventually, he meets one of the main curators, and the curator recommends to the Will something that will satisfy him a real lover who will do anything and everything he asks of her. He recommends him a slave girl. 
and the will is distraught by this as he should be and you see it in his facial expressions but he goes along with the curator hesitantly and the curator is talking as he takes the will to what he calls the inner core where the most valuable employees are kept often brought from refugee camps and the curator knocks on the slave girl's door opens it up and it's a small child and the will is even more distraught and the gears in his head are churning as he is sort of trying to make sense of this entire scene. And he he asks how old she is, and she says she's six. And the Will is looking just gross and disgusted out. And he turns to the curator, and he says she's a goddamn child. And with his two hands straddling either side of the curator's ears, he crushes his head like a melon into a million pieces, so hard that his hands clap in the middle, right where the head, where, right where the head just was. And... This scene evokes a similar recoil to me, for me, as, like, the mountain and the viper, where when Oberyn Martell is destroyed by the mountain. It's just this really visceral, undescribable damage that is done in a single page, in a, in a single few pages, really. And that's the first scene in the in the comic that really shows you what you're in for in terms of the violence, in terms of how it deals with in in terms of the lengths characters or some characters at least are willing to go to destroy their enemies and what we see over the course of the series the will takes care of the slave girl who takes on the name sophie and it's relationships like this that really move me in a way The series maintains this balance between grim horrors of the world that the characters live in and the hopefulness that can come from the meaningful relations. We see Marco and Alana trying to raise Hazel, whose very existence is considered blasphemous to both her mother and father's races. You see the Will caring for Sophie, but also dealing with his own internal trauma and past throughout his journey. You also have characters, I touched on briefly, Robot 4 whose initial call to action in the series is that being the robot prince, he is given an ultimatum by his father, the king, to destroy the runaways, Alana and Marco, or else he won't be able to return home to his pregnant wife. And, like I said, the subplot has shades of Zuko from ATLA. The idea of of having to regain one's honor through this act, and in order for everything to return to normal, for these circumstances to return to normal, And throughout his plot, he's on this journey of self-discovery and self-rediscovery and trying to figure out what is most important to him in his life. And Saga, put succinctly, is about grim darkness and the hopefulness of these relationships, and it's about protectors and those who need protecting. But Saga isn't just harrowingly dark. It's also balanced with incredible funny and lighthearted moments and characters like Isabel the horror and Gus the self-described adorable badass and they bridge these certain gaps with snarky quips and banter in Isabel's case and by just being a welcoming warm wholesome blissfully ignorant character in Gus's case and it really is just awesome to see but what makes the story truly great is the way Brian K paces these interactions and POVs in panel form in what I would say is a masterstroke of genius and there's really never a dull moment. I found in the past, reading some comics, um, 
there's this dread of reading that can hang on the page if the dialogue isn't snappy enough or if the movement isn't happening throughout the panels. But that isn't an issue here. Brian keeps the car on cruise control, pushing us through the action while still letting his wonderful characters breathe and become fully fleshed out. What Saga really did for me was make me reassess how different mediums tell stories. You know, how does a space opera operate in a graphic novel? What needs to be cut out? What needs to be played up? And graphic novels are just really another storytelling device. And what they do differently than movies or TV is they're comprised entirely of these snapshot moments. They've inherently trimmed the fat because it's it's trimmed the motion of movement. They live in a space that can only... I can only give and keep the best integral details of a story. These characters are entirely in stasis until you direct your eyes to the next panel. And although these characters live in stasis, their character arcs and changing internal hearts are anything but. When pitted against the danger of the world they live in, some characters fold, falling by the wayside, while others resolve to live and carry on. Some out of selfishness, but others do it simply to protect the ones they love so they can carry on. And Saga at its core is about this sacrifice for hope in the face of a grim darkness. I want to leave with a piece from an interview by Sci-Fi Wire with Brian K. Vaughn. When asked about Saga, he said, Each book I work on is just cheap therapy, where I'm struggling with some issue going on with myself or the world. So, yeah, Saga was basically the terror and joy and excitement of becoming a parent. But realizing, like, if you try and describe that to other people, like, you just watch their eyes glaze over, and no one wants to hear you talk about your boring kids. So, by setting in this sort of grand space opera universe, I was hoping to sort of give you the feeling of what it's like to create something. So, yeah, each book is just born out of where's something weird that's going on inside of me that I want to talk about and how can I trick people into subsidizing my therapy. Mind Theater is a solo effort produced and written by me, Aoe Kingbade. To subscribe, look for Mind Theater on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For updates on the series and upcoming episodes, follow Mind Theater Pod on Twitter. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time.